Open your copy, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus is at Matthew's house when we start this out. And as events are going to unfold before you this morning, and as we're going to walk together through this passage, you'll get a wonderful glimpse of the wonderful Savior whom you have trusted in. It will be a joy for your heart. Let's begin at verse 18 together. Follow with me. While Jesus was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. When the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. Ah, but the Pharisees were saying he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Four major miracles. Compassion is the alleviation of the suffering of other people as though it were your own. I know that's true because I looked it up on the internet this morning. It's actually a pretty good definition. Compassion is the alleviation of the suffering of others as though it were your own. And that is the thread that takes us through the text this morning. We walked through four compassionate healings, and then it's directly spoken of. Look back with me, please, at verse 36, beloved. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. God wants us to know the compassion of Jesus. 
he predicted in the Old Testament when he was entailing upon the Son of God the holy office by which he would carry out his three-year ministry. He says in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. People are compared in this text to bruised reeds. Back in the day, you would take a reed, probably growing near the Jordan River, and you would break it off at the bottom, and then you would break it off at the top, and then you would fashion out of it by drilling into holes a reed to play for a musical instrument. But after a while, because of either the saliva that you would get into the instrument or because of the finger pressure, you would eventually bruise it. So what would a person do? You take the reed, you snap it in half, you throw it away, and you just go on to another reed and make yourself a new little pipe to play. Everybody back in the day would use little, little handheld lamps. And out of those, they would have a little wick. And the text says here that a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Well, you would take this little handheld lamp and finally, eventually, the wick would burn down at night and it would become dim and hardly give off any light at all and it would become soaked with whatever kind of oil was there in the residue and so people would just simply pluck it out and flip it away and stick a new wick right into the lamp. In this text, the compassion of the Son of God is prophesied by God the Father that my servant will not take people who are like bruised reeds, used and break them and flip them away. Nor will he take people who are only giving off a little bit of light and really kind of smoky wick and simply extinguish them with thumb and forefinger and flick them away, but rather he will reinvigorate them. This is the ministry of the compassionate Jesus Christ. When Peter preached the gospel to the Gentiles, For the very first time in the book of Acts, he says this, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You might remember Jesus early in his ministry entered into a synagogue. And as he was in the synagogue, he opened up to a particular passage in the Old Testament and began to read, This is how he characterized his ministry to the people he grew up with. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Since the great shepherd of human souls is none other than Jesus Christ... His under-shepherds are to be compassionate servants. They are to be like Christ himself. They are to be shepherds for afflicted souls. It really is the unique, uniqueness of the Christian ministry. It is the uniqueness of the church. While anybody, frankly, can take care of all kinds of human needs physically, and it is necessary, the calling of pastors and shepherds to care for afflicted souls. We are called to care for souls. And because we ourselves, all of us, have one great shepherd, we know that he alone can be the only one who can truly care for us. Only the great shepherd can truly deliver us from the invisible, demonic, satanic element behind all sin. 
And if you, like me, are unable to figure out the twists and turns of sin in all of its various ways and find yourself overcome by it or find yourself weakened by it or find yourself paralyzed by it or you are about to cry this morning, then do know that there is a great shepherd who knows your soul and knows how to heal your soul. And you have under-shepherds who yearn to see him do that for you. Now, this morning, I want you to enjoy this passage maximally. I want you to walk with me through it, through the four miracles. In fact, if you would, kindly look at verse 35 just real quick. Jesus, Matthew could have written just this, verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, and then he could have moved on. Let's go on to the next subject. But he doesn't for us. He takes time to give us eyewitness accounts of four miracles that he saw after Jesus attended the party at his own house. The four witnesses, the four miracles are a physical healing, a resurrection from the dead, blind men get sight, and a demon-possessed man gets exercised. The four miracles show an increasing order of importance to the divine calling and office entailed upon God's compassionate servant to Israel. Notice that I said to Israel, because that is who Jesus came to bring healing miracles for, not the Gentiles. Many Christians get confused at this point. Christ's healing ministry was limited to Israelites. There's maybe like a couple of exceptions during the ministry, and whenever those exceptions occurred where a Gentile woman would say, please heal me, she would have to come through Israel. A lot of Gentiles, a lot of people get very confused over this matter, thinking that Jesus came to provide all kinds of miracles to Gentiles. I understand why, don't you? Don't we want Jesus to extend all kinds of miracles to everybody and heal them? Of course we do, but that's not his plan. Instead, what he does, he comes with a greater miracle. That is the miracle of eternal life for everyone who believes in the gospel. This is what is offered to us today in Christianity. The promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life in the presence of Almighty God. That is the basic premise of Christianity and everything that it refers to for our benefit. Now let's go back to our context, which we talked about earlier. I want you to go all the way back and look at verse 13 briefly. Jesus is reproving some Pharisees who had just been very rude at a dinner party over at Matthew's house very rude, shouting in through the outer gate. And Jesus says to them in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion. Obviously, the, something the Pharisees are greatly lacking and something that Jesus brings. Compared to the rude Pharisees, the rude spiritual leaders who had their stranglehold on the people, Jesus comes with compassion, and so he comes in a unique and a particular way, in a manner that's in so glorious keeping with the Old Testament. 
And then Jesus goes on from here. He teaches about old garments, old wineskins, patches of clothing, new wine, and things like that. All of those things to talk about how you can't take a ministry of compassion and pour it into old covenant dress. You have to come with the new covenant, and you have to put it in new covenant dress. Churches, for example, properly understood, properly ordained, have a ministry of compassion to care for our sin-afflicted souls, bring us to heaven, to bring us to Christ-likeness, to bring us to joy, to bring us to happiness, to bring us to unity, to bring us to love, to take us outside of ourselves, to deliver us from the power of Satan, and nothing less. Pharisees are those who have no compassion for people, and in fact, they have no spiritual wisdom whatsoever. Jump your eyes now down to verse 34. After all these miracles, what are the Pharisees doing? Well, they're saying, Jesus casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. They absolutely hate Jesus Christ. To them, he stands for everything that is evil in the world. He is the very loci of evil incarnate. This is indicative of what false shepherds are. False shepherds have no compassion. False shepherds use people as why they get them in their churches, as why they extend their ministries, that is why they ask for money. Instead of alleviate people's sufferings with compassion, they feed them husks, rules, all kinds of man-made teachings, whatever it is according to the spirit of that particular day and age, in order to be cruel to human people as Satan's own tools. And I, I, would, I would just mention to you briefly, I know not everybody's into words and stuff like that, but I, I do want to tell you this. The word compassion is, before everything else, an emotional word, okay? It, the word is guts, right here. It, it's, it's, it's guts. And even here, it's, it's interesting. It's in a verb form, which means an action. So it's to be engutted. To, to have compassion is to feel pity for the hurt of another person. Sorrow. If you don't feel pity in your heart, then you don't have compassion. Even worse, what religious teachers do, the false ones, is, is they want to come across like they have compassion, but once you come to know them, you will find your hurts not alleviated but judged and looked down upon. Aren't you glad we have a building? You would find with false shepherds that once you've opened up to them, that now becomes a file and a dossier on you for which to use later on when they want something from you. Very, very harsh, cruel stuff. Compassion is sympathy. Compassion is empathy. It's even pity for another's sufferings. And our Lord even though sinless, was filled with compassion. Now, he could also be tough as nails on religious leaders who had no compassion, right? He was the toughest of the tough. But for people, most people, he was filled with compassion. So let's see that together. Let's walk through the four miracles together. 
All right, the first miracle is really filled with compassion. It's a woman with a 12-year flow of blood. Join me in verse 20. We're going to take it a little out of order here, but this is the first miracle in the account. Verse 20, and a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. I'm going to pause for a second on that, okay? 12 years. Came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, your courage, take courage, your faith has made you well. Now, based on the Old Testament, Leviticus 20 in particular, she was perpetually unclean for all these 12 years, yielding themselves to public shame, timidity around people, fearfulness. And so she comes and she touches Not Jesus, not anything to be seen, nothing to be made visible, but rather touches the hem of Jesus' garment, possibly the tassels of his garment, not him. Because she's thinking to herself, if I touch him, I make him unclean, just like I make everybody else I've been touching for the last 12 years unclean. I make him impure. We know from the Gospel of Mark, this woman was independently wealthy. According to Mark's Gospel, she had spent all that she had on doctors. It was her own money, too, so she was independently So here she is. She's shy. She's timid. She's broken. Her soul is deeply wounded. She suffers every day. For her now, it's all she's known for the last over a decade. She has things in her life that you don't mention in a prayer meeting. You hide them in the clean and unclean culture of Israel. She's at the bottom, bottom of the culture. She's unclean. More than that, she's a contagion. She's all alone. Go back over the reality of the nature of the religious day. What do you think the Pharisees and the rabbis of the past 12 years have told her to whom she must have gone? The doctors and their treatments and their various ideas. Most likely, they told her to confess her sin because obviously God was afflicting her Because she had a hard heart in some area, right? So that's what they would have done. All sorts of treatments added to it, all sorts of money to be paid, things to do to show your repentance for sin. No compassion on the woman. But Jesus has compassion. Look in the middle of verse 22. See what he calls her? Daughter. That's family. Here's a woman who's all alone. He calls her daughter. He loves her already. It's like you're my family. And then, this is really interesting. The next thing he says to her is take courage. It's actually the word for certainty. It's actually the phrase, be certain. But we don't get that, so that's a little hard to translate. That's actually what Jesus says. Be certain. That's very compassionate. Twelve years of suffering. Twelve years of wondering, what are you doing, God? Twelve years of, you must really despise me, but your word says you don't. Twelve years of loneliness. Twelve years to be subject to our own thoughts and insecurities. Told by cruel spiritual leaders, do this and God will heal you. Have faith 
Just do this. Claim the promise or whatever they told her. It's interesting. In the text, the word for getting well is actually the word for getting saved. It really is. And it tells us that Matthew is telling us that Jesus did more than just heal her physically. He healed her spiritually. This is the word used all the way through the passage. This was not merely physical healing. She was saved, spiritually saved from the judgment of sin. This was full on compassion. So now she's his daughter, never to be separated, disfamilied ever. And one day after, even though she has been healed of this, one day she will die. Upon that day that she dies, she will fly into the arms of Jesus. That's what happens here. The second miracle is pretty terrific too. (laughs) Jesus' compassion at first is a little bit harder to see, but you'll see it in a second. Look at verse 23, please. No, go go back to verse 18. Maybe we need to go there. Back to the beginning. Now, while Jesus was saying these things, that's at Matthew's house, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him and so did his disciples. The compassion here is in the immediacy, not in the words. Without a word, Jesus leaves Matthew's party. That's the compassion right there. There's an instantaneous response to the man's situation. And interestingly, so did all the disciples, the text says. They followed right after him, including Matthew, telling you now that Matthew is an eyewitness of all these things that are being described here. Now let me ask you, who pretty obvious question, those of you who are parents, have you ever had a, a sick child? Have you ever had a really sick child? And of course, the truth be told, in a congregation of this size, some of you have had children who have died. Now, parents, we're kind of a dumb breed this way, aren't we? Because our hearts are instantly on the line when something touches our children. You know, you you touch a man's child and you can do whatever you want with the man. And the mother, too, right? Think about this man. My daughter has just died. Instantly, this great man gets up from a feast with no delay and immediately begins to go to the man's house. Compassion. We simply can't put a price on anything related to our children. Whatever is required, we'll do for them. Whatever is necessary, if they're sick, we don't care. We don't care. Kid comes first, right? Nothing higher, nothing more important. Did you see the picture this past week of the the little Syrian boy who was pulled out of the building in Aleppo, Syria? The bombing had happened, and he pulled out this little five-year-old boy named Omran. The picture has swirled around the globe, eliciting compassion from parents everywhere, because here is a shocked little five-year-old boy with with one eye almost shut and, and dust all over his body, thoroughly in shock on a, in an ambulance on an orange seat. 
It immediately elicits compassion. And you really enter that compassion when you are looking at that and you say, that, that could have been my boy. And then the heartstrings are completely pulled out, as they ought to be. Once you feel that, you're wounded by the picture. You're inwardly wounded and moved inside your bowels for the suffering of those parents. And by the way, that little boy's oldest, uh, older brother died yesterday of the bombing. Well, that's the sort of compassion here. The little girl is dead, and there's much sorrow. Now drop your eyes down with me to verse 23. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and uh, the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep, and they began laughing at him. Now all this, these verses tell you is that the funeral has already begun. In Israel, you bury your dead within 24 hours, otherwise you dishonor the body. It tells you that the father had already hired the professional mourners. That's what you did. And and then he had gone to Jesus. They were a trade guild, believe it or not, back in ancient Israel. You were supposed to hire two flutists and people who would wail. Their job was to lead the grieving for the family and, and help the family get all the way out to the grave and not to stay in the house or not to stay where they were, paralyzed out of shock for the death of a family member. All this text is telling you is contextually, sensitively, the funeral has just begun. They would loudly clap their hands. They would wail out loud. You guys know the eulala, how women can do that. I have no idea how they do that stuff. To elicit, listen, compassion. We Westerners think that to be pretty funny, awkward and weird. And I don't know if I'll ever quite get over it, but in that culture, it's extremely appropriate. It's not considered strange, and it's considered a great act of mercy to help everybody let out what's going on inside. We like to bury it in, and we, have our, we will have our funeral service from 1 o'clock to 1.30, and then we will all meet over for coffee and donuts, and we're like done with it. And that's nothing, right? So we can be laughed at ourselves the way we tend to handle death. But you can see that these people's heart is not in their job. For them, it's a job. But when Jesus says, what, that the girl's asleep, they start laughing at him. Can you imagine how hard that was on the dad to hear that? His little girl had died, and now they hear, he hears the people laughing. Like, he knows that they're not compassionate. And why did the people laugh at Jesus? Well, because they thought he was a dollar short and a day late. They thought Jesus was coming there and thinking, hey, no, she's not dead yet. She's only sleeping. I haven't arrived yet. As if Jesus hadn't been caught up on the latest news. No, she's really dead. They're kind of like you, ignorant faith healer guy, you. If you had any wisdom about you, you'd recognize that she's uh, already dead, pal. So they just figured that Jesus thought she was still sleeping. There's just no compassion from the people in this passage. But you compare that to verse 
25, look at Jesus. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Hey, that's a miracle, except it's put in the most plain words imaginable. Oh, yeah, she was dead. Jesus took her by the hand, and then she got back up. Okay, next. You see it? How simplistic. There's no dramatics. There's no faith healer stage offering going on. In fact, the crowd has been sent away. He doesn't want an offering. He just wants to heal the little girl, get on with his amazing ministry of compassion. Now, the other Gospels tell us that there were five witnesses here, three of the disciples, but you guys will love this. Who else was there? The mom and the dad. They were in the room when Jesus took the hand. Can you imagine being the mom and dad in that? Can you imagine, seriously, as a parent, holding her hand again, hugging her again, feeding her again, which is what Jesus instructs them to do, the parents? Feed her, give her a meal. Can you imagine for the rest of your lives your gratitude to Jesus every time you were with that girl, you went on a little family vacation, you went swimming, you watched her get married. You grew old and you watched her have children. You watched her make her mistakes. You watched her do things well. Everything for you was grace when it came to that girl. Such an astounding miracle of compassion for them, them, not everybody else. By the way, touching a dead person in Israel made you unclean. Of course, if you had the power of Jesus Christ, you touch the person, you make them alive. Guess what? You don't contract their uncleanness. You render unto them perfect cleanness. Now, before we move on, just one thing. I can't personally think of a greater miracle than resurrection. Can you? If you could be this girl and you could get healed 500 times from your sicknesses and you could live 10,000 years because every time you get sick, you get healed, but eventually you're going to die. If you don't have the miracle of resurrection eternally, what good have the 500 healings done? You've just lived a really long time, but you died eternally. The greatest miracle, in my opinion, is the resurrection from the dead, which, of course, I believe this girl's going to have and uh, all that. But the miracle is to show you the power of Christ. But the resurrection of the dead, that's the king of the miracles right there. That's the best one of all. Okay, let's move on together to the third miracle, the two blind men who request compassion. Look at verse 27 with me. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have Mercy on us, son of David. Mercy is the word Eliasan. It's to, it's to they're, they're actually requesting mercy us is really what they say. Or, or, or better, they actually say, mercify us, mercify us, son of David. I mean, they, they really have great understanding of who Jesus is. Have mercy on us. We're blind. They're not saying, although they mean it, heal my eyes. They're saying, have mercy, have mercy, son of David. Brilliant stuff. Now, now, now watch this. Continue on, verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind man came up to him. Again, that's a private miracle. That's what Matthew is telling us. He's telling you personal details. He was there. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. 
Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. Now, did you catch the detail of the compassion? It was back in verse 29. Look at it again. Jesus touched their eyes. The part of them that was the worst. The part of them that failed. The part of them that made them what they felt like less than everybody else. He could have simply said the word and they would have been healed. He could have touched them on the side and patted them on the shoulder and they could have been healed that way. But he chose deliberately to do something for them, to touch them, a touch that they would physically, viscerally feel for the rest of their lives. They would never, ever, ever forget this man who touched their eyes. And then, of course, when they opened them up, they could see perfectly. Now, again, in this passage, like with the woman who had the flow of blood healed, these guys are those who have faith in him, and Jesus even draws their faith out. Do you see that there in verse 28? He draws their faith out, just like he does with you and me. He, he takes us through circumstances, and he draws our faith out into him, so it does it doesn't remain like a, like a wick that's going out, but it can have more flame, more joy, more power. And it shows that Jesus regards the sin of unbelief as exceedingly dangerous and exceedingly bad. Faith is that which trusts in what God says. And here is Jesus, God's promised, compassionate servant, healing them. And so what does he do? He He wonderfully heals them. They knew that this was what the Messiah would do because, after all, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 35, when it prophesied the Messiah's ministry, he would heal those who were blind. So they were wise. That's why they said, son of David. They understood. And then you probably saw this little doodad in verse 30. Didn't you, this little mystery here? Jesus says that he warns them. He basically rebukes them. See that no one knows about this. You know, one second you're getting healed from having blind, having the guy touch your eyes, and the next second he's telling you, don't tell anyone about it. You're probably wondering, right, what's going on there. It, it simply is Jesus governing his popularity throughout the ministry that he had. When the popularity would grow too large, there was the threat that he would be arrested before his time. So in order to dial back the popularity level and the fever level that his miracles were producing on kind of a carnal sense, he would just tell people to dial it back. That's kind of what's going on here. Because he didn't want to get popular too fast. By the way, when he comes down the mountain in the triumphal entry, the only political act Jesus ever does in all of his three-year ministry, when he comes comes down on the foal of a donkey, a deliberate act saying, I'm king, That's the time when he turns the dial up on his popularity, and that's the time when finally the rulers have to react. It's like a throttle on an engine. It's kind of like sails on a boat. It's kind of like how you order inventory for your company. You have to dial it in, dial it out, a little windage, figure out how much fuel mixture to put in, 
based on what you want the engine to do, based on how you want the sailboat to go, based on how much money you can burn in inventory. All that kind of stuff is what's Jesus doing here? He's just navigating the path forward for his ministry in terms of what he has to do. It's such an act of wisdom. But you know what? I tell you what. I, I read these, what these guys did, right? Verse 31 says, they, they went out and they spread the news about him throughout all the land. I realized that's what I would have done. If I had been given the choice between obeying Jesus Christ and not telling anyone and disobeying Christ and telling everyone, shame to me, but it's true. I would have gone out and told everyone. And so on one hand, I know, like, oh, it's okay, they disobeyed Christ, but they did just get their eyes healed from sight. So anyways, that's just, you know, amazing. Well, let's go on to the fourth miracle together, the casting out of the demon and the restoring of life to a badly abused man. Look at verse 32. As they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Can you imagine how amazing this man felt? All of a sudden, with a demon cast out, he felt clean. Clean. None of us, I trust, knows what it feels like to be demon-possessed. But I'm sure whatever it's like, it's incredibly filthy and awful. To have that cast out is to feel clean. But then it's all brought very clear for all of us in this fact that he spoke. The mute man spoke. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if it had been a woman? No, I'm just kidding. Just how wonderful it was to speak again when you couldn't because the demon held your tongue. How wonderful. What mercy. And I bring that out only to say that demons are horribly cruel. They enter into a soul. Who knows exactly how they do that? And when they get in there, they rule in cruelty and malice. They hate Jesus Christ. They hate his followers. They hate everybody. Demons rule geographically. They use false teachers in order to get doctrines of demons into churches in order to enslave souls so they can be cruel to souls, both of the saved and the unsaved. They want to teach false doctrine. They want to enslave people, bringing them under the dominion of their cruelty. You know what else? They work very, very hard in order to cause people to distrust God's compassionate servants. Look what they do with Jesus Christ. Verse 34, but the Pharisees were saying he casts out demons by the rule of the demon. That's Jesus' reward, by the way, for these four miracles. Well, thank you very much. Remember, these guys are the leading religious authorities around the nation of Israel. It's estimated there were 6,000 of these Pharisees. They were basically the pastors of the day. And you would have them in every village, in every town. You might even have multiples in every town if the population was big enough. And that's what they were saying. This was their professional opinion, and of course, these were the men you were supposed to trust. These were the guys who had the Bible. These were the guys who had the people following them. These were the guys who had the reputation that they were knowledgeable. They were educated. They were worthy of trust. They wore the right clothes. They spoke the right way. They had the right lingo. They knew how to talk to people in such a way that it connected to them. And now they lay out their judgment. 
But it's put here for you and I to see that these men are evil shepherds. Evil shepherds. There's almost nothing crueler that could be said to Jesus. He hears this and feels this as a man. He's just done all these works of compassion. And instead of being understood, he is eviscerated. Boy, demons do not rule in just one way. They demon-possess some poor souls. They rule them that way. Other demons strongly influence religious leaders in order to, to pull people in on Sunday, to gather them together, to hear their doctrines, to influence more and more, to get more and more for their own reasons and motives, typically greed, Other demons will fill a man with false doctrines and make him look compassionate when he's actually a rapacious destroyer of sheep. I remember when I was a very young believer. I I know it was Satan. I was very young. Woke up in the middle of the night. There was a voice inside my head. And it was speaking to me and saying, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. And I was saying, yes, I am. Yes, I am. And then it came faster. You're not a Christian. You, You sin. You're evil. You're vile. You're disgusting. I said, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm in the Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ died for me. And the, and the voices came faster and faster and more intense and more intense inside me. And, and I'm less charismatic than Joey Newton. <laughs> and this experience really happened to me. Finally, I just was like crying out. I was on my knees on the floor, crying out, cried out to the Lord, Lord, make a stop. And the voices stopped. All that to say is that there's, not that I have routine experiences with such things, but I can tell you that it's definitely real. I know it's real from the Word of God. I know it's real from my own personal experience. I can tell you that they're cruel, they're filthy, they're disgusting. What I felt inside, what I experienced inside was dirt, guilt, uncleanness. And boy, when the voices stopped it, I feel good. Well, that's the four miracles we've had together. Now, commentators look at this section that you and I just walked through, and they note something quite surprising. It is this. Matthew put the resurrection miracle in the middle of the section instead of at the end. At the end, he has an exorcism. And they ask, now, why would Matthew place the most spectacular miracle in the middle of the section instead of at the end of the section? You should save the best for last. You should put the most powerful miracle at the end. It's kind of like when you have a piece of music. What do you do? Do you end it off? If it's going to be a great, glorious piece of music, you end it off with cymbals clashing, drums pounding, and all the trumpets blaring, right? Because what's more powerful than the resurrection from the dead? But Jesus has a broader agenda than just doing miracles. We find out, in fact, that Jesus did miracles nonstop, 24-7, pretty much. If you read verse 35, he was going through all the cities and villages doing all these miracles, healing every single kind of disease and every kind of sickness, casting out demons, doing every kind of miracle that could possibly be done. There was nothing that limited this man. But look at the people after the miracles, verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. 
hey, those miracles were critically important. They proved beyond any reasonable doubt that this man was filled with compassion. They displayed the compassion of his father. They showed the power of God's kingdom on earth. But listen, these miracles also made eternal hell worse for people like these Pharisees and a lot of other people who would never believe on Christ because they would see the finger of God in action and turn away from unbelief and as a result have a hotter hell than all others. And besides, is not Jesus' mission greater than just doing miracles? In the greatest act, in the greatest miracle ever, and the greatest act of compassion, he will go to a cross, have the sin of the world placed upon him, die for it as if he had committed every filthy thing that you and I could ever do, inspired by whatever satanic involvement could have been involved, and whatever willful desire we brought out, and have done over and over and over again ad infinitum. And he died for that and received in himself the penalty for sins he did not commit, the all-holy, all-pure, all-clean, miracle-performing Jesus Christ. What is the greatest act of compassion he was yet saving himself for? And of course, the resurrection right afterward. But he could have done all that But what good would it be from the future on? Because after he rises from the dead, he goes back to his father. So what is necessary? It is this, not to produce an army of miracle workers who will go through the world and continue to do miracles for people over and over, 24-7. You got a demon, you got a sickness, you guys blind. What do you got going on? You got the sniffles? Bring it over here, dude. Because even after miracles, the sheep are like distressed and dispirited and depressed. And all they've done is see a show. But the thing that they need is a shepherd. You see, Jesus sees them and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. This is where you see now the wisdom of Christ's compassion. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and his awesome compassion is to send out compassionate workers so that sheep can have a shepherd. The shepherds that are currently over the people of Israel are these evil Pharisees and others like them who are cruel and oppressive and unkind even though they look the cultural part of the upstanding, upright kind of people. They are cruel. Cruel. And Jesus is compassionate and he is building laborers who are compassionate for people like us whose souls are afflicted and sad and burdened and dispirited and distressed. And so it is today where you live. The religious environment is no different today than it was back then. People are like sheep without a shepherd. They are distressed. They are dispirited. The picture here of a distressed and dispirited sheep It's not the picture of a sheep lying down on the grass and just silently chewing some grass or doing whatever, just lying down. 
commentator David Turner says this, the imagery is of a predator mangling the sheep and throwing them down on the ground. It implies that Israel's religious leaders are not faithful shepherds but vicious predators. So in compassion, Jesus calls for prayer, for God to send out workers into his harvest. That's why he says in verse 38, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. You see, there's no shortage of men wanting to be your spiritual leaders. But most of them are cruel. They would have you to be divided from your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. They would have you to believe their pet little doctrines. They would show you compassion so long as you are loving them and fulfilling their objectives and their will and their agendas in ministry. But once that no longer is true, they turn on you and abuse you tear you up, chew you up, throw you down to the ground. The laborers, Jesus says, are few. The harvest is plentiful. Verse 38 is therefore a call to spiritual warfare carried on by men of compassion who will shepherd souls. In a word, then, this is asking for a ministry of rescue. Delivering souls out of the clutches of cruel spiritual leaders and into the place of safety, of finding Christ, not a mischaracterization of Christ. Who will go to rescue souls for God? It's a critical question. There are more evil shepherds than there are good shepherds. Paul writes to Titus, about the pastors on the island of Crete. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of money. To the elders of the church of Ephesus, Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. In the book of Revelation, there are seven churches that the Lord Jesus Christ addresses from heaven. Four of them are already either under evil shepherds or they are having to confront evil shepherds who are trying to get their foot in the door. Compassionate shepherds seeking to rescue the elect, they go out into the harvest. As verse 38 says, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Harvest language is apocalyptic language. The harvest metaphor is usually tied to judgment. Quick, get the harvest from the field into the barns. The storm is coming. Quick, get the shepherds going. Get the sheep out from under the clutches of false teachers. And quick, get them to Jesus Christ now. And 40 years after Jesus preached this, the storm came in the form of the Roman government and they destroyed Jerusalem. Two million people died. But before that, the great harvest came in because of the answer to this prayer. As the church of Jesus Christ was born. So listen, disciples of Christ, pray. Pray, as Jesus says in verse 38, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. We don't know how long we have. 
prayer is called for. These men are weak men. That's why they need prayer. They will be, like their master, assailed and tormented and accused. And through it all, they will shepherd souls at great personal cost. They're not cattle farmers. They're not just trying to get people in the door. What they want is they want to shepherd souls. The hardest work on planet Earth. The most thankless work on planet Earth. The job is never done. And most souls are never where they want to be until they come to Christ. Now together, let's go to Christ in prayer and in the Lord's table. Gentlemen, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given clear and compelling command to us to pray for compassionate men to shepherd souls. Now we thank you that you have had compassion through Jesus Christ for us. And if we were perfect in faith, we'd never have a doubt. We'd never have a criticism. We'd never have a bad day. But we're very lacking and we're very imperfect. So we need shepherds. We need men like Jesus. We ask now for help and understanding and taking of the body and blood that represents our beloved Lord Jesus Christ. And we need your help in enjoying the privilege it is to take it together. We ask for your favor and your mercy. Deliver your elect from false teachers, from cruel shepherds, and knit us together in one body, right here in Newtown. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.